Welcome to our Wednesday live event. This actually happens every single Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. We call this event Innovation and in Audio. Innovation and in Audio usually involves one person in the radio or podcasting world. But we also have another interview with another person who is often uh, outside of radio or even outside of audio itself. The second individual, well, that's our person that's usually directly involved in the path of innovation in some form or another. Our purpose on Wednesdays is to handle innovation, change, how to create it effectively, where are we going, and more. When you need a radio consultant now, ask yourself who is connected to 21st century talent, the new ideas, and who is hungry for your success today. My name is Lloyd Ford, and I am a branding advisor and consultant with Rainmaker Pathway Consulting Works, LLC. If you have a morning show that isn't famous enough to lead your radio station in ratings or drive overall radio ratings for your brand, it may not be their fault at all. If you want a consultant who will actually help you build strategy and grow value for your local brand, who will provide you with a crisis hotline you can call for backup anytime, our short name is RPC, but it still means the same thing, Pathway to Money for our clients, Rainmaker Pathway. You might want to find out about our music lab and how that particular service prevents music drift and improves ratings or how our morning show fame development coaching puts the accent and the action in the right place to build opportunity for robust ratings growth. Ask us about encouragement also. It's one of our services. We help podcasters find their audience as well. If you know someone who's looking for fresh perspective, fresh answers, recommend us. We'd love to help. You can reach out anytime, F-O-R-D at RainmakerPathway.com. This live event is part of our podcast ser series that's actually called the Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast and will become available within about an hour of the end of this live event wherever you get your podcast. And, of course, we have a uh, library of past episodes as well. Uh, Brian, if you'll go ahead and mute your mic, that'll be helpful for us here. Um, I do want to say thank you to Joe Kelly for producing our podcast events and JustJoeProductions.com for creating audio footprint and distributing them. Today's guests are J.C. Derrick, publisher of Main Street Daily News in Gainesville, Florida. That is a digital publication. We're going to talk about that and where they're going with that. Also, Brian Wallace is with us, former VP of Programming with Radio One and now the head of digital and web design at uh, bdubcreative.com. Before we get started with our guest, I would like to give you a quick preview of what's coming next week on Innovation and in Audio. Next Wednesday, August the 11th, Pat Miller will be here. Now, Pat Miller is the idea coach. Wait till you see what he is doing with people in the digital space and with the idea of the idea. Yes, I said that. Skip will also be adding a guest this coming week, so you have to check back on our website for an update. Of course, we've already scheduled guests into September and early October, and you really should see who is 
on the list by going to our free blog section at rainmakerpathway.com. You will also find free encouragement for on-air and promotions with our more than live and local guest series. And for local radio sellers, you get more encouragement with our encouraging sales success series, as well as free resources for anyone in radio today. We don't lock away anything on our website the way some consultants do. So go to RainmakerPathway.com anytime, 24-7, and see what you can get for free from our team. One last announcement before we get started with today's great guest. We have a bulletin for you. This is the first time we've ever done this. We're doing something called the Radio State of the Union Live Event, a frank discussion about employment, job search, career management, corporate and local radio, and the future with Mike McVeigh and Lloyd Ford right here on the Encouragers on Clubhouse, Tuesday, August 10th, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. It is a special one-time event. And yes, because you're here, you are absolutely invited right now to join us on Tuesday. Let's start with uh, J.C. Derrick. Now, look, He's the publisher of the Digital Main Street Daily News. Before joining Main Street Daily News in Gainesville, Florida, he spent 18 years covering sports, education, and politics in Texas and Washington, D.C. J.C. has a journalism degree from the University of Texas in Arlington. And, of course, he's been published in dozens of outlets, including the Washington Post, the Wisconsin State Journal, and World Magazine. And, of course, he's also appeared on a wide range of radio and television networks, including C-SPAN and EWTN. JC, welcome to Innovation in Audio. How are you, sir? Hey, Lloyd. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited to have you. Listen, your background, well, you know, you come directly out of the newspaper business, right? Well, uh, directly, uh, maybe indirectly might be a little bit more accurate. Ah. Um, I spent the first 10 years or so of my career in uh, writing for a newspaper, actually, multiple newspapers, but primarily one in Texas. And uh, mm-hmm. then eventually went to work for a magazine and, and then moved into their uh, radio division. So uh, most recently, over the last eight or so years, uh, have not been directly involved in the, in the newspaper industry. So uh, mm. coming to Main Street is uh, kind of returning to my roots. Well, uh, returning to roots and also you kind of have a hybrid situation. We're going to get on to that in just a minute as well. Tell us about your start and, and why you're so interested in the story, because clearly you love a story. Oh, I do love a good story. My, my wife goes, you've got that look in your eyes, you know, when I'm on the, on the trail of a good story. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, it started, you know, I, I got to be honest, I think any, any journalist who says they don't like seeing their name in print is uh, uh, lying to some extent, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I think for me, my first story was uh, was printed at age 18, and seeing my name in print, uh, it, it, it kind of hooked me uh, to the power of storytelling and uh, just what what that medium can do. You know, I, I found my calling, and, and uh, uh, I, I call journalism a calling. I also call it a... Um, an addiction <laughs> for some of us we just we we can't stop you know um <clears throat> but over time you know I, I switched from uh you know and, and obviously i'm kidding when i say that 
you know, it, it's not only to seeing our name in print that people go into journalism, but but that certainly was what hooked me in the very beginning as a, a, a someone still in my, a, in my, a teenager, and um, <clears throat> I just moved on over time to uh, make this, make the switch into higher education and politics because I wanted to be writing about things that that really mattered, and that's not to say sports doesn't matter, but it just wasn't where I wanted to stay, and um, I think. On, on the sports note, I, I can remember a, a time when, when I really, uh, it's it just a, a moment that's burnt in, in my mind. And it, it was, uh, I'd written a story about this young man who was uh, at the time playing for Texas A&M University. And he was uh, a pitcher and had battled through some injuries and was coming back. And people had kind of forgotten about him. And I, I wrote this story about how he was battling back from injuries and, and so on. And, and uh, his, I, I happened to be at an event where his mom came up to me and she was just she was tearing up talking about how how meaningful that story was and uh you know it just it, it really drove home to me the 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 power of storytelling and going out and getting the story and being able to tell tell that uh to an audience and um so what what keeps me in the profession i would say is just the fact that um you know however imperfectly we we may do it uh you know journalism is about telling the truth and that that's always our north star so uh, that keeps me going. Well, and I'm going to say that, you know, you just morphed over because you found more and more the compelling stories were in the political end of things, correct? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? You found that the more compelling stories for you ended up being more politically yeah. political stories? Yes. I, I think at the time that was certainly true for me. Uh, my my view has changed on that over the last several years. Uh, I think all of us have changed on that a little bit. Yeah. I was uh, I, I started in D.C. during the Obama administration and uh, uh, went into the, the Trump administration. And, and uh, you know, it was it was an interesting time. But um, by the end of it, I was I was ready to get out of D.C. and move on to different kinds of storytelling. That's right. And uh, certainly it would calm things down a little bit more for you, I assume. You spent almost a decade working for World News Group, working your way up to, uh, no, uh, let me see if I got this right, Deputy Chief Content Officer and, and Managing Editor. Tell us about that organization and, and what that almost decade was like for you. Well, it was looking back. It was kind of a whirlwind. Um, I I started as uh, originally as an intern, and then moved into uh, becoming a Capitol Hill reporter and and moving along. I mean, in terms of the organization itself, it's uh, forty years old. So there's there's a lot there's a lot there. It started out as uh, doing uh, kids' papers uh, to private schools back in the '80s, and then launched a news magazine for adults. Um, I, I chose my words careful that uh, I did not say an adult magazine. I said a news oh, magazine right, for adults. Nice. You know, so let's keep that straight. Uh, but anyway, eventually, after being a, a reporter uh, and, and Washington bureau chief, moved on to uh, managing editor of, of the radio division, which was a completely different, you know, same organization. But my chap, I jokingly told people, my paycheck comes from the same place. That's about all that stayed the same. Um, because the team I was working with was different, the role was different, uh, the the medium obviously was was very different, and uh, so I, I learned a lot there. And then moved into, um, and I did that for about three and a half years, and then moved into to deputy chief content officer. Basically, what that is is uh, that is kind of the new term that that a lot of media organizations are uh, are starting to have. 
And um, it's roughly analogous to a publisher position. So I was kind of like the assistant publisher, basically, uh, involved in both content, uh, you know, driving innovation with new podcasts and uh, growing our existing podcasts and things like that. And then, but also on the business operations, doing HR, leading web website redesign and, you know, basically whatever needed to be done. I was, uh, you know, the, the proverbial gum stuck in the organizational cracks wherever they appeared. Well, and I think we all know that things are changing. Uh, uh, consumers and their choices are changing. And here you are at an interesting crossroads where you've now mentioned radio. You've now mentioned uh, digital websites. You've now, of course, mentioned writing the story. So there's writing the story, telling the story, the visual part of the story. How do you find these things to be different? And, and which one is your favorite? Is there a favorite? Oh, man, that is that is a really tough question. I, I think um, my favorite part of the process is still the news gathering process. Um, and so whether whether you're telling a story for the ear or, or for the eye, uh, you know, when I say for the eye, I mean, like print, writing a story or, or video, you know, whatever the, the means of telling the story is, my favorite part is just finding it and uh, talking to people, basically taking readers, listeners, viewers, whatever the case may be, taking them to places they haven't been and introducing them to people they haven't met. Uh, that's really my my favorite part of the process, regardless of what the medium looks like. And it's been exciting to you since you were 18, right? <clears throat> that's right. Yeah, it was it, <laughs> kind of an interesting, just I'll, I'll briefly tell, tell that part of the story. I, I, I am did not growing up, grow up thinking I was going to be a journalist. And uh, it was kind of a long story. But basically, I, I was my brother was on a baseball team that won the state title and went to the World Series. And uh, I sent stories back to the newspaper and they were like, they, they printed them and said, hey, you want to keep writing for us? You know, so my pathway into journalism was completely unexpected. But uh, as I said earlier, I was I was hooked immediately. Happy accidents happen all the time, I say. More more recently, you've now found yourself as purely a digital publisher working for Main Street Daily News in Gainesville, Florida. Tell us uh, the concept of this digital property and, and what y'all are doing. Sure. Um, I mean, on, on one hand, it's pretty simple. We're just simply trying to cover Gainesville and surrounding counties better than anybody else. But you know, when you dig a little deeper, there's there's a number of things going on in the in the news uh, business. And on the one hand, you've got this dynamic where you've got, despite what seems like an endless number of of news outlets out there, uh, so many of them are focused on national uh, uh, the national scene national and politics, especially. But, um, you, so you've got this dynamic where there's actually a number of smaller and mid-sized markets where, you know, you've got pockets that qualify as news deserts. They really don't get covered. Um, sometimes they're on the doorstep of a major city. Uh, they're just not covered very well. So that's one thing that we wanted to, to go in and, and, you know, cover some, some areas that, don't traditionally get coverage. And, uh, you know, we've, we've found a good, a good response there, but there's another thing happening in a lot of, again, smaller and mid-sized markets where, um, you've gotten what used to be covered by, you know, three people is now covered by one person or, or even more covered by five or six is now covered by one or none. Um, and that's because a lot of these legacy newspapers have been bought up by, uh, these huge networks. I read just the other day, um, a, 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 post at uh, the 538 blog, Nate Silver's website. 
And uh, they mentioned that over half of all newspapers now are owned by either a hedge fund or a private equity firm. I mean, that's really a, a stunning number. And, and that's surprising, actually. Yeah, the, these these groups are are interested in the bottom line, and and that's that's pretty much it. So they're they're notorious for cutting staff and hollowing out newsrooms. Then they run a bunch of wire copy and just cover the the local scene with just a skeleton staff. And so what we we're trying to do on on the on that side is just to really exploit this this hole that we feel like is developing and and only getting bigger and bigger in these communities where um, these local newspapers are not run by by local people anymore and they're not generally as in tune with what's going on in the community but to the extent they are they just don't have the bandwidth to actually go cover it and so uh, we, as I said, we, we feel like there's a, a huge opportunity there and, and uh, you know, we're proving our concept in, in Gainesville and, uh, you know, that's going well. And then we want to expand into a network of community news websites that will go into to communities and, and give them the, the coverage they deserve. Well, I read a bunch about this and it, there was a hot minute when people that were trying to do digital stuff, we'll call it, okay, trying to do di digital papers and this kind of thing started to worry about Amazon and Google. But then Amazon and Google kind of came to an idea that they really didn't want to be in that business. And as everybody knows, Google goes and grabs local, you know, <laughs> or, or grabs the most relevant. You guys have most recently started to be quoted by traditional papers in places as well. Is that not correct? Yeah, that is correct. Um, the local NPR affiliate has, has referenced our, our work, uh, se several others, the local elected officials. Um, yesterday, we were cited in the, in the Tampa Bay Times. Um, so basically, by, by just pounding the pavement and and covering things that no one else is covering, you, know, you, you force yourself into the, the mainstream conversation of the community. All right, so let's talk about this. What are some of the opportunities that you might have in, you might have in digital that you simply just don't have as well or don't have at all in old-fashioned print? Well, I, I, to me, the biggest thing is just the mentality. I mean, any print publication, almost without fail, it's, it's not true. I mean, there certainly are some new print publications, but that's not the typical uh, startup today. Um, so most, for most any any outlet with a print component, they've been doing it for a very long time, and that brings with it a lot of habits and and just a general way of thinking that is often at odds with the modern news consumer, which does not think print first, even though the news outlet uh, may be kind of stuck in that that rut. And even when they know it that that rut exists and that mentality, we got to break out of that. It's still just really really hard to do. And um, you know, just as one example, the the print publications often will just uh, sit on stories until the print edition comes out. Not always. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking generally, but, um, you know, I've, I've seen these kinds of circumstances up close where you, there's just a, there's a, the, 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 the legacy print mentality is that it needs to print first and then it can go online, you know? And um, so I think mm. we are untethered from that as at main, at main street, uh, and so we're, we can be more flexible, agile, responsive to the local news cycle. And, um, you know, even as a small staff and, and an, an insurgent outlet, we've been able to beat the legacy news outlets with regularity. And again, I, I think whether you're talking about 
going up against a daily newspaper or you know a a tv station where okay the news comes newscast comes on at six or ten or whatever um we're able to to just bring the news whenever it's ready uh we're not tied to that old way of thinking and so even if we do get into print later and, and we may um you know we'll we'll bring to it a, a digital first mindset and which you know i think is the future well, it, it certainly looks like the future in so many different ways. And you do see some some pure plays that are doing this. And then there's you. Now, look, as, as consumers have shifted kind of violently to digital, more specifically smartphones, uh, you, you see a lot of change in publishing. And of course, you're fortunate to be attached actually to a radio cluster and group in Gainesville. Where do you see the opportunities for Main Street daily news and, and specifically the, the advantages of being attached to a cluster of radio stations as well? Well, I think we are just beginning to take advantage of all the opportunities there. Um, there, there just are so many. Um, but I think what the, the biggest bucket there would be just sharing content. Um, sometimes that's print to radio. Sometimes it's radio to print. Um, but the radio websites, each there, there are several. Like you said, it's a cluster. They have uh, a feed set up for Main Street Stories. So that helps them stay engaged in local news. Um, without building a news staff, you know, if you're if you're a, a, a music station, you're not you're not going to invest in the infrastructure to go cover the news. Um, if if you're if you're there to to do uh, music, so so that's one one example of how we've been able to feed them and help that direction. Uh, some of their interviews we've been able to convert um, onto the website. We also have one of our reporters, and and it's a this is a it's a print reporter goes on the uh, does a, a daily roundup of main street stories we call it the main street minute and um you know it, it is he's not a, a, a classic broadcast voice or anything but that's part of the charm we feel like it's it's a way to connect with listeners you know uh, our audience um in a personal way um as i don't need to convince you of the, the power of radio you know uh and so that's been something that we've we've had success with. We have a lot of people tell us that they hear about our stories on the radio uh, with the Main Street Minute. Um, and we, we've also been working on some joint coverage efforts. Earlier this year, we did a, a, a Opioid Awareness Month. And uh, next month, we'll be doing uh, Hunger Awareness Month. And, you know, so across our platforms, we are looking for opportunities to leverage the the multiple um, platforms for one effort and uh, so you know it's it's different audiences but but stories and reporting that we can take to all of them and uh, so we've we found success there we've also we're also working on some uh, some joint events that um, hopefully uh, if, if COVID doesn't get in the way uh, we'll start next month with a, a newsmaker interview series that will be uh, content for radio, content for Main Street, a podcast, and a live event all wrapped into one. So, um, you know, we, we think there are just many, many opportunities there. And, and we're, as I said, just beginning to to uh, scratch the surface of, of all that's there. You know, I'm not going to talk about politics, but I am going to talk about COVID <laughs> for a minute. Okay. <laughs> because here you sit in Florida, right? There's lots of controversy about this, that, and the other. I mean, there's even controversy about the CDC and what does this mean? And did they walk back this? 
What's the hunger, in your opinion, because you actually see the numbers all the time. Does it ebb and flow about COVID-related stories? Are COVID-related stories really hot? Give us the 411. They are. They are really hot. Uh, Last night, we had a story about the uh, local school board in Alachua County, which is where Gainesville is. Um, they elected to bring in a, uh, a mask mandate for a requirement for the first uh, couple of weeks of school, at least, because there's a, a surge going on in, in COVID cases. Uh, I just automatically, this sets up some, some tension, you know, which in any good journalism, there's tension. And uh, uh, the, the governor uh, of Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis, had just issued a, uh, an executive order on, I, I believe it was Monday. It was just a couple of days ago. Uh, saying that you know basically no school should pass a a uh, any kind of requirement that that should each individual's decision should be left up to the parents, and oh by the way you know if if you pass a mandate anyway you just might get uh, your funding pulled and which best we can tell that's about 110 million dollars on the line for the the Alachua County School Board uh, and they passed it anyway so. Yeah, that that story has been popping today with with comments, people going back and forth on on not just uh, I won't even say both sides because there are mul- many sides to to the story, and uh, you know we, we we just try to cover straight up what's going on and and let people decide for themselves. Um, but yeah, COVID stories are definitely uh, of interest as things develop, whether it's on the medical front, people are trying to figure out what's going on, our hospitals full in certain communities and various things. Uh, but but certainly the policy decisions are very scrutinized and very much of, of high interest to our readers. I have noticed that there's a lot of opinion here in America. Okay. Yes. So does opinion come into play, and I don't mean the opinion of the publisher or from a business standpoint, I mean, do you let people have voice to, to share their opinion through Main Street Daily? Almost without exception, I would say the answer is no. And, and that is very intentional. Um, you know, the, the high, going back to that 538 piece I, I read, which I thought was very insightful and, and very data heavy, which, uh, you know, it's helpful for making decisions and observing trends and stuff. Um, one of the, re, the main points of that post was about how the nationalization of everything. Remember the, the, the dynamic I talked about where you've got these outlets that are uh, absolutely you know, it, it nationalizes everything. And so it's the trend, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so people, you know, don't, not to be critical, but people don't pick up the Gainesville Sun to read national news, but the Gainesville Sun hasn't really figured this out. Most of the stories on their front page are about are national and ours is, is exactly the opposite. We run some, some little briefs on national news at the bottom, but for the most part, we're all local. And that has, that has real effects in terms of what, you know, people, the way they interact with the news, it makes them think less like, uh, you know, partisans and more like locals. And so um, that is one, you know, one, one area of focus. But the other area of focus is, you know, just the world, <laughs> frankly, there's way too much opinion out there uh, in, in, in the news industry. And so we made a commitment to really focus on the reporting and what's going on in the community. Um, we don't run, I mean, I'm not saying we haven't run any, any, uh, opinion, but basically we have one, uh, kind of faith and inspiration type, uh, guy who, who writes sure. 
a weekly um, post for us that runs on Sundays. And that's really it. Uh, we don't take editorial positions. We don't have any sort of op-ed page. Um, and it's not to say we wouldn't add any, any more opinion writers in the future, but it will always be de-emphasized. Uh, mainly, we're trying to tell people Very what good. is going on in their communities, not, not how to think about the issues. Right. Now, you know, the, the name of this live event on Clubhouse is Innovation and in Audio. So we love talking about the future a little bit when we can. None of us really know the future, but that doesn't stop us from thinking about it, asking about it, talking about it. What's the future of publishing? And here's where I'm going to slow down a little bit on this question that goes with the question. This is the real question. Do you see a more immersive set of experiences coming for consumers related to maybe digital publishing? More immersive. Well, maybe. If, if, if I really knew the answer to that question, I think I'd be a really, really wealthy man. <laughs> um, the, the, the way things are developing uh, to me is, is oftentimes unpredictable. You know, um, I would not have predicted Clubhouse, for example. You know, it makes perfect sense, but, but it's not something I saw coming. And so um, I think we're, we're, you know, it, it, in a way, I'll, I'll punt on that on that question and and take it back to what I was talking about a minute ago in, in terms of the content and tone, because I think this is a really important aspect of the conversation. Um, and, and on social media, I mean, they're, they're trying to figure it out in terms of to what extent do you uh, moderate, to what extent do you let people have free reign? You know, I mean, there are, there are, big, big issues to think through uh, on on just how people interact. Um, but I think for what people are trying to figure out, I believe, and what there's a hunger for is is fairness and also just a, a trust. Um, and, and I will be honest, I mean, look, the media industry is is hurting. A lot of people are suspicious of us. You know, we're, we're the enemy of the people, according to some. And uh, it, that's a result of, whole, of a whole lot of things. I mean, obviously, the, the news industry has done many things to undermine its own credibility. But I think the bottom line is that, that there is a clear lack of trust on the parts of many people uh, of the news media. There's just too much partisanship, too much advocacy that slips into to journalism. And so, in a very real way, you know, I think what we're trying to do is <laughs> rebuild the journalism industry from the from the bottom up. You know, small ambition here. Um, we, as I alluded to earlier, you know, we do not believe that national outlets are the answer. We believe the future of publishing, to your question, is local, and that's where we want to help rebuild the trust in the important institution of journalism and help people uh, know. You know, it, it's it's easier to believe someone who's writing about issues that are happening in your back door and a reporter who you might see at the grocery store, as opposed to Joe Blow and Ten Buck Two or or you know whatever locality uh, someone is is publishing on on you know their national opinions about. Uh, well, from. And, and of course, you know, look, you you talk about that being such a big goal, it's such a huge deal. But I talk about this all the time. Local is local is local. People don't care what you say. They care what your actions are. Right. So maybe this is a part of that movement. And certainly from these kinds of markets, that thing can develop that kind of movement. JC, I want to thank you for joining us on Innovation and Audio. I hope you'll stick around in case some of our uh, 
folks that are listening have questions for you after our second interview. When sure. you subscribe to our individual podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, you'll hear important tips like when Alpha uh, when Alpha Media Director of Urban Programming, Derek Brown, uh, talked about hiring new program directors today and some of the things you have to watch out for, he told us, quote, you, you may have served under a great program director and you never went anywhere. You were great at executing, but you were not so good at coaching talent into championship environments, a winning environment for your team, an environment where people want to come and be innovative. Innovation is key. You have to look for creators and innovators, unquote. Find out what else he said about social media, about learning to capture a, a programmer's attention and market manager's attention if you're looking for a job, and others by subscribing to in the Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast. We have great guests and insight every single week to help you grow, learn, and meet challenges of your career in the 21st century. Meet our guests live on Clubhouse or subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss anything. The Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast and the Encouragers The Radio Rally Podcast, two podcasts, both on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Now comes the really fortunate part of things for me. I get to kind of kick back, listen to my friend Skip Dillard from WBLS and Hot 97 in New York City. By the way, the entire idea of innovation and audio, oh yeah, came from Skip Dillard. Skip, how are you? I'm good tonight and uh, really enjoying the conversations as always. Uh, the gentleman I have this week has been a definite mentor to me. Um, and, you know, I remember um, I actually met him by chance, a mutual friend. I said, hey, they're looking for a night jock in New Orleans. Uh, the morning guy's gone and a few people have moved to different shifts. And, you know, why don't you send a tape and you know, just by chance put one out there and, uh, you know, was doing overnights in Greensboro, North Carolina, gotten out of college, FedExed it and went to bed the next day after doing my overnight shift and who's on the phone at 11 a.m. that next morning, waking me up with the phone ringing at my parents' house with Brian Wallace and, and so goes the start of my uh, full-time career. Brian, how are you tonight, man? Good, good. How's everybody doing? And everybody is doing great. So I guess we'll, you know, start off. You have had a, you know, been a very successful talent as well as program director. Some of the call letters, KMJM in St. Louis, K104 in uh, Dallas, KKDA. Uh, of course, the WYLD in New Orleans, where you picked me up. And you had great programming and regional programming runs in Indianapolis, Detroit, New Orleans, uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, and, and a lot of other great opportunities along the way. And for me, you always seem to be an early adapter of just about everything confronting our business. I remember our PPM conversations when electronic measurement was on the horizon with then Arbitron. I remember talking about the shift in, uh, you know, everybody having a morning show and when, you know, really things started to go heavily into syndication, especially, uh, you know, beginning with Tom Joyner uh, on the urban side. 
following the lead of jocks who had done it earlier, like Don Imus and, and Howard Stern. So, you know, tell me a little bit about your, your shift uh, towards digital and, and, you know, making that transition from your last uh, big programming gig. And, you know, you're still doing day-to-day -day radio at the time. I think what, well, first looking at the business, I always kind of maintain uh, this mindset, even as far back as when I was working in St. Louis at Magic, that we had this business is a is a is a blessing uh not everybody can do it there's money to be made in it but i always look at this business kind of in the same way as i look at nfl players nba players major league baseball players it's it's something that you can do for a period of time max it out for as much as you can but at cert at a certain point there is as there is a beginning there is an end and the question I always pose to myself and then later in my career, I would pose to my staffs were, what is your plan B? And I, I stick with that every day. What is the plan B? What else can you do if this no longer is available for you to do? And I really kind of ramped that up probably, I would say in about 2011, as uh, I, I started seeing changes uh, in the business, including me, having to not only oversee a cluster in uh, Indianapolis, but also having to uh, cons uh, to uh, co-program, per se, a uh, station in Detroit. And, you know, when I started looking at this, it's like, no, this job needs to be filled, but I'm the one that's filling it. So I just had this mindset that, okay, at some point, what I'm doing will ultimately happen to me, and I don't care how talented you, you are in this business, uh, at some point, uh, this is this business is about talent, but it's also about money and revenue. And at a certain point, you're gonna you you need to prepare for that next move. So w what I ended up doing is I you know I always was into the whole web thing and and learning how to build websites and that kind of stuff. And at that time, I just dabbled in it a little bit. And probably by the time I got down to New Orleans. I was I was kind of in the mindset of we need to just go ahead and make this a business, even if it's just a side business while I'm doing radio. That's fine. And then once I left New Orleans, it was like, OK, let's uh, let's move forward and create this as a full time business. And that's where Beat Up Creative uh, kind of came from. Yeah, no, it's. Um... You know, I, I remember talking about it when you, you know, first started doing some some websites just on the side to kind of play around with it. And I think that was what, you know, was indicative of how you always, you know, operated trying to stay ahead. I was curious about some of your mentors. I mean, you had a very top 40 approach to urban stations in terms of, uh, you know, even long before PPM was even on the horizon, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and you were always about tight consistent focus breaks you were always about music intensive promoting music sweeps back selling front selling um you know tell me about some of the people that inspired you not only as a jock but to eventually get into programming i think that would have to start with mike strafford who was my pd in st louis um because at that station they were very much about uh sounding general market we just happened to play urban music but in essence the whole concept was if we got to switch to top 40 we won't have to let anybody go and that was kind of the sound of of the station for the most part 
um, as my career moved on, uh, no question, Tony Gray and Ron Atkins were very instrumental in my success on air as, as a job in New Orleans and my my growth and development as, as a future program director, which led to getting that first programming gig in, uh, in New Orleans. Uh, as far as other people that I've worked with, um, James Alexander learned, to, learned mm -hmm. of, uh, quite a bit from him from my time working in Dallas. Um, Harry Lyles, um, uh, the consultant out of Atlanta, um, and uh, Rick Cummings, who at the time was VP of programming uh, at Emmis, who I learned quite a bit in terms of just looking at the overall picture, particularly the financial picture and how uh, programming decisions can affect what you do financially. And to start to, to put things together in terms of not only are we here to service the uh, the consumers, a.k.a. the listeners, but also how does that affect and how do we uh, grow and maintain business with our clients? So those would be the sure. those would be the primary people I would I would say. I mean, to be honest with you, I've, I've got other people that I could probably name uh, that are not even in the radio business, but just different things that I would learn from them. I could take those concepts and apply it to the radio business. Sure. And when you hired me in New Orleans, Brian, you were programming a number one station. Uh, it was in a very heated battle, though, with Crosstown Rhythmic Q93. I, I believe when I, I got there, YLD had at one time a 17 share. That can't be duplicated in PPM today. I think yeah, they're more today. like an 11. <laughs> not today. Not, but while the pressure, what do you say? Not, not unless a few signals happen to shut off. Yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> no, well, I mean, the pressure was on for all of us, but you seem to find a lot of fun in that game. And I know you saw numerous of the battles after you left New Orleans. And what did those highly volatile radio wars, I remember it got so bad at one point, you know, we were sending each other applications for employment across town to the yeah. other jocks. And the other, you know, what, what did that, what did those old wars teach you about uh, serving listeners in our business overall? I think it, it uh, what was really good about that is that it always kept you on your toes. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, you're fighting for the same person that your competitor is fighting for. So it, it forced you to have to be creative in terms of what you did marketing wise, what you did promotionally. It forced you to have to take a look at, is this record really a record that the consumer really wants and how much of it do, do they want? So it, it really puts you in focus. And I kind of took that same mindset pretty much everywhere, uh, that I went after new Orleans. I, I mean, that's, to, to some extent, that that was an energy that I never turned off. Even though now I'm mm. not even in radio, I still have that same mindset. And we'll probably well, leave, leave this planet with that same mindset. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And, and, you know, as a PD, you really taught me to see the big picture, how to find common ground with talent, which isn't always easy, how to deal with the politics inside the building, attention to detail. I remember once you fined me 50 bucks out of my paycheck for messing up a commercial. And while I was upset at that time, it, it really taught me a lesson. And guess what? I never made that mistake again what I had to do production. So, um, you know, I think, um, you know, really when we, uh, you know, look at everything, I mean, for someone trying to 
uh, grab their first brand manager PD gig, or let's say a PD who now has to not just program two stations in their market, but you know the only way to be a PD is let's say to be uh, you know, director of programming for the whole state of Virginia. What's uh-huh. needed now and what is going to be needed three years from now in order to be able to be in programming and whatever title we'll have at that time? I think the first thing is that you have to um, really gain as much knowledge um, as you can in terms of how to learn how to do the position. Once you've done that, one of the key things uh, that I can remember toward the end of my time in radio was the ability to sell not only yourself, but sell your concepts both down the stream and up the stream. Because in terms of a, a person's success, you can have your whole staff buy in. But if your general manager or your VP of programming doesn't buy into it, you're going to be kind of limited and and how much success that you'll enjoy uh and that's kind of the same situation in in terms of you may have your uh your vp of programming convinced loves your ideas uh same way with your gm but if you don't have your staff on, on the same page and on the same boat when that boat sails uh you're either sinking or you're swimming so the ability uh to be able to sell upstream and sell downstream in terms of uh you know, your your concepts, what your vision is for what you're doing, um, as well as selling you. You gotta sell you you gotta sell the fact that you can do the job and make those above and below you feel confident that they believe in what you're doing. Yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, agree with you, Brian, and, and both you know, we've had some very late night conversations about uh, you know, both victories and disastrous situations where, mm-hmm. you know, either one side wasn't on the same page. I, I could not, you know, definitely couldn't agree more. I wanted to spend a few minutes uh, on one of the most important lessons you taught me and, and the talent you worked with, and that was community. I remember when I got to New Orleans, one of the biggest, uh, you know, challenges we faced was uh, David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, who was running for Louisiana governor. And, you know, due to the uh, way the state was laid out, due to the controversial Democrat running against him, you know, I remember YLD uh, working hard with voter registration to a point where David Duke even sued the station um, because uh, they believe we were supposed to be given political uh, fairness, having, you know, Republican and Democratic registrations. And so I remember you going verbatim what we could and couldn't say and and probably what gave me... um, I guess you could say it was a, a, a benchmark in my career. It came very early. I remember lifting a woman with no legs in a wheelchair into a van the station had rented to go vote. We were picking people up in the hood and taking them to vote. And I said, Jesus, this is this is really amazing. And and you know, when I look back at that, when I look back at National Night Out Against Crime and meeting Mayor Bartholomew for the first time and some of the things that were going on with uh, Mark Morial when he ran for mayor and being out in the streets at his campaign rallies and calling back into the station. Uh, You know, given the way we have seen radio progressing to regional and even national presentations at times, 
Is community as a secret weapon something that we've just forgotten in today's radio? Is it something we can continue to keep? Is it something that, uh, you know, is, is just too costly or, or, or too time consuming to, you know, what are your thoughts there? I think to some extent, it, it just really kind of, first of all, it depends on the company that you're working with and what is that company's uh, perception of what serving the community is all about. Um, I think there's still ways to continue to do those things. I, I, you know, one of the things, even though it was a joy to do all those things in, in, uh, in New Orleans, one of the biggest things that I, that I really enjoy from a community standpoint was here in Indianapolis when I uh, came back to work uh, when WTLC was owned by Emmis at the time. And uh, uh, the folks at Indiana Black Expo came to us because they were like, they would do these fundraisers for the Moselle Sanders Foundation. And just to give you guys a little backdrop, Moselle Sanders was the first gospel announcer at WTLC FM when the, when the station launched in 1968. So he would do this Thanksgiving dinner where I think he fed about 3,000 people uh, at the first Thanksgiving dinner. And as time moved on, it it grew to the point it was feeding tens of thousands of people. Um, by the time Expo came to us and said, well, what can you do with this? Um, you know, we shot some ideas around and finally decided, let's do a radiothon to raise money and to also elicit uh, volunteers. And over the, over the course of the next five years, once we launched that promotion, which was always like the second weekend in uh, November, uh, we went from 16,000 the first first year, and I think about 500 volunteers to my last year at Radio One, I think we did about 85 or 90,000 in, uh, uh, in, in terms of finances, and then about uh, just shy of uh, 3,000 volunteers uh, to work the kitchen at the, uh, the Thanksgiving dinner. Um, that's probably the, the biggest pride. And, and what was even bigger was participating on Thanksgiving day. And in particular, uh, carrying my son and my nephew with me to actually deliver meals so that, uh, not to say that we were rich, but you know, I was able to bring a paycheck home on the 15th and 30th every, every month, but I also <laughs> wanted them to, to see another side of what life was not just Indianapolis, but this could be in any market USA and to see the, the people that we were delivering those meals to. And in some cases, you know, like, like I have one situation where we delivered a meal, we took like mm -hmm. four uh, meals up and uh, my son took, took it in and he only saw this one individual. And he was like, I, I didn't see anybody else in there, but the one guy, but he had, he had four meals. And I said, well, yeah, he probably asked, and they were more than obliged enough to provide him a meal for Thanksgiving Day, Black Friday, mm. Saturday, and mm. Sunday. You know, because that was the whole premise behind uh, the whole foundation Thanksgiving dinner is that no one should go without a meal on Thanksgiving Day. So just things like that I think you can do. And honestly, those don't cost money. The only thing they mm. cost if, you, if your heart is in it is time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I could not agree more on that, definitely. 
So, Brian, as we move to fight our way out of the pandemic, what are your thoughts on what radio can do now in order to be more successful in the face of more uh, connected cars, more streaming, streaming services, podcasting, which, you know, we saw podcasts explode during the pandemic. Just about every uh, bit of data I've seen have talked about podcasts. Of course, smart Mm -hmm. speakers uh, continue to gain in popularity. I mean, smart speakers have been a blessing because, of course, a lot of people utilize them for listening to radio. So that Mm -hmm. can only be a great thing. But, you know, what, what should we be doing now as we, you know, hopefully, God willing, look behind us in this pandemic? I think the first thing you got to uh, to look at, to be honest with you, is when you consider where people can can get content. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm not even going to use the word music. I'm going to use the word content where who offers content and what is it from, you know, in terms of terrestrial radio? What is it that you can actually offer a consumer that can't be done on Spotify? It can't be done on uh, Tidal and some of these other streaming services. Uh, for that matter, it can't be done uh, with television and it can't be done, you know, surfing the web with channels like YouTube and that kind of stuff. Do I have that answer tonight at 7.54 p.m.? I'm not going to say necessarily <laughs> no, uh, but that I think that's one of the things in in terms of terrestrial radio where they got to where in general, the business has to start to look at what is it that they can offer that's going to bring uh a loyal consumer base to them that they can provide that no one else can provide because i think one of the things that's gotten lost in in radio is there's been this emphasis to shut jocks up this emphasis yeah. to play 17 song playlists and that kind of stuff Be, you know because of the advent of streaming services and that kind of stuff and and i always always kind of wondered about that from the standpoint that those are, I always felt like those were the kind of things that were going to force people to go to things like streaming services uh, yeah. and, and whatnot. But again, that's just my opinion. Uh, but I think that's the biggest thing you got to look at is what is it that you can provide and offer to consumers that they're not going to get anywhere else? Because anybody can get music just about anywhere now. Uh, it's not just, you know, it's not just on radio. So it's like, what else can you offer a consumer that they can't get right now if they go to Spotify, for an example? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a good point. And, and, and that leads to, you know, pretty much the question we will wrap up in case anybody has a question from the uh, listening audience here. But, you know, I often ask every panel I've done, conference I've attended, um, and this comes from program directors, general managers, market managers, presidents, owners. Uh, you know, they always ask, hey, um, I know it can be done. Smaller companies like Town Square, for instance, have been very successful building and, and selling digital strategies and platforms. Mm-hmm. But look, I own three stations in Mississippi. I own three stations in uh, Delaware. You know, how do I begin a digital strategy on limited, very limited budget? What would be your thoughts there? Well, right now, uh, pretty much, what would you say, 85, 90, 90, 95% of all of us use some sort of social media? Mm, Correct. Somewhere in that area? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, 100%. So, yeah. So now, you, <laughs> yeah, now you're really. at a point where it's like, does it cost to get on? Does it cost to set up a Facebook account? Uh, does mm-hmm. it cost to set up a Twitter account and an Instagram account? So you got to start there. Uh, I think I still think there is a, a place for websites uh, yeah. in terms of um, being able to provide content. You know, one of the things I started to put in place when I was in New Orleans just before I left is that we were looking at, okay, how can we be, be better effective in terms of on air? Uh, and actually, our thing was more uh, trying to drive TSL up. Um, so one of the things I had looked at was that, you know, for a lot of years, record companies always wanted to get their artists interviewed on the radio, on the radio, on the radio. So mm-hmm. it just so happens I was I was actually started this conversation with Rodney Sheely and then moved on to a few other people. And I said, well, what, what, what do you think, how do you think it would be if you can get your artists to be able to dial in and we have a split screen either on our website or on one of our social platforms to be able to do, to do um, interviews with those artists. And the cool thing about that is, unlike when you're on radio, if you're on radio, I got you on a timer, man. You got two minutes to do this, right? Because we got to go in the commercial break. On... Mm-hmm facebook platform or if you happen to be able to do it live on your website you can go 10 minutes i don't care go yeah. for it matter of fact yeah. it gives us more time to, to to dive deep into that that individual not only from a personal standpoint project you know uh different things that they're involved in uh it allows the the consumer to get to know that artist a little bit more other than what yeah. they see on video um mm-hmm. you know the only the only downside to that whole deal is that by the time I left um, you know Wild D because we were in the middle of a, a cutback ourselves and I was part of it I didn't get to see that thing for, uh, go to full fruition but the what's been interesting is that conversation in 2013 man I saw so much of that in 2019 and, and 2020 on a lot of radio stations websites and I, I, yeah. I had uh, I think about a year and a half ago I had happened to uh, be talking to Rodney and I was like remember that conversation we had and he said yeah definitely because we definitely been putting it in place with with pretty much all these radio companies (laughs) as well as all our artists and we've been flexible and what was cool about it B was that it was it was flexible enough he said with a lot of the A artists you know it's hard to get them to go out and do stuff but if I can go and tell them not I just need you to just be available to do this give me 30 minutes at your house it yeah. was easier to sell them on the concept that way so that not only were we given exposure to the the new artists but we were also able to get the established artists and it also drove numbers uh, as far as unique uh, views and that kind of stuff to your website so just more of that kind of stuff where again it doesn't cost anything other than to build a website and and have a person that can set up all your social media and be able to man it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, you know, I love exactly what you said. And, and, you know, I think social has been a weapon that stations that have used it effectively, you know, I mean, even in New York, uh, you know, we, 
uh, you know, save so much money that others spend because we've learned how to use social, um, you know, media with, with more effectiveness. Brian, how can they reach you, man? And, and want you to stick around a couple of minutes for questions too. Okay. Uh, well, my, uh, my portfolio website is beatupcreative.com. Um, my email address is, uh, beatupcreative at gmail.com. And, uh, Tell you the truth, I'll go ahead and put my phone number out there. I'm always available. Uh, 317-508-3001. If you call me at 2 in the morning, you'll get, you'll get voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is, man. Well, Brian, thank you so much, man. I always appreciate our late-night conversations. Oh, no doubt. Definitely, you're, you're one of the true... Uh, you know, industry, uh, you know, you're a student of the industry, but a professor at the same time. So always appreciate you. And Lloyd Ford, I am going to hand it back over to you. Thank you. All right. Now, I know that everybody heard that, right? I mean, everybody in our business, and let me be clear about what our business is. Our business is content and we're innovation and audio tonight. So we're talking about innovation. We're talking about audio. The thing that everybody kind of gets and people throw it around. We know what makes you unique. That's really important. We all know that. But often sometimes I feel like people miss what, what Brian just said. What can't others do that you do. And I want to draw a corollary between Brian and JC right now before we even step forward to questions. And that is this. They're both talking about what can't others do that you do. That's what makes your unique selling proposition. And I always think with radio or podcast or whatever it is, it's the relationship that you have with your audience. Thank you, Skip and Brian. Now, Brian, uh, we're hoping you're going to stick around in case somebody in our audience has a question or two for you. Absolutely. Don't forget to don't forget to follow the people on the stage during this event and look around the room too. We are big believers in connection and mentoring and networking here on the encouragers. This is the place to get encouraged. We have a couple of events every single week. Thank you for being here and participating in our live events and telling others as well, because that's how we spread the gospel, so to speak. We are going to open up the room in case there are a couple of questions uh, from you for our guest right now or anybody on our panel. Just push the button at the bottom of the screen. It looks like a well, I guess it's supposed to look like a phone. It really looks like a notepad to me and somebody's hand, but you get the idea. If you do that, we'll bring you right up to the stage. We do ask that you mute your microphone when you come on to the stage. If you don't do that, we're going to have to send you back down and try again. Uh, by the way, uh, when you join the encouragers, uh, we have people who come only to listen. I want you to know that's okay too. Our goal is to provide you with interesting content, advice, career hacks, and uh, opportunities to move your career forward 
through thinking about what the future is going to bring for us. It's our effort to encourage you about the future and to have you go on the offensive in your personal career. But we don't mind sharing the stage with you if you're so inclined. So I'll just put it to you this way. We extend that offer every Wednesday. We do it at this time. Don't feel pressure to talk. If you don't want to, we're fine with that as well. This is a safe space for everyone. Don't forget that Monday, you can join us at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for our radio rally on Clubhouse right here in the Encouragers. This Monday is our Mornings to Satellite Active event. And of course, uh, Krista Hatcher Ullman will be here. She is the morning co-host of Krista and the Morning Rush on 93.1 Jams in Madison, Wisconsin. Joining her will be Bob Buckman. Now, he is SiriusXM Director of Music Programming. You've got to know he's got some interesting stories and an interesting perspective on innovation in audio. Tell your friends uh, in innovation, audio, and specifically radio that they can get our free resources at Rainmaker Pathway in our free blog section. If you have a specific challenge that you would like to have strategic advice, simply email me for a free and confidential consultation, FORD at RainmakerPathway.com. I would like to kick things off uh, just by asking this question. It's going to be a little uh, tense for me because I've never worked urban radio. And if you don't catch this right away, Skip, I'm talking to you and Brian, I'm talking to you. The other night, I was actually on Clubhouse late, and I stumbled across some urban program directors. They were having a conversation about radio and about consolidation, and then they talked about how a lot of corporations are telling urban program directors to shut up about community. And I actually kind of chimed in and I said, what is an urban station if it doesn't serve the black community? What what actually is that? And I, I got an earful. It was very interesting. And so I got to ask Skip and Brian, if you guys can kind of take this on for just a second and tell us a little bit about that, because that that's a captivating, that was stunning for me. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'll go real quick and, and I'm sure Brian can, can weigh in as well. I mean... You know, uh, many owners that have found their way into the business that have inherited various formats, and you see the same problem with a company that, you know, maybe may inherit a country station and they really aren't country uh, uh, centric. They don't have experience in it. They may inherit an urban format in the same thing or a top 40 format when they prefer uh, AC stations with less racy music. And, uh, you know, that's one of the challenges. Uh, it, it is to find people who live the lifestyle, um, even if you have, you know, many others or most others in the mix that do not. You, you, you need a person who is a so-called specialist in a particular uh, area of expertise or several forms formats that understands that, hey, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's a difference between apples and oranges. And, and that will always be the case. It's what makes radio special. Um, you know, a, a Jack FM approach to every 
uh, ideology of, of programming, uh, you know, has never worked, will never work. What makes radio special is that it is unique to the particular audiences because it's targeted. And usually if it's researched well, it has a clear lane, it has a niche. In order to keep that niche, um, you really truly have to be engaged into the needs of the audience. We all know that urban audiences, uh, even the affluent urban audiences, were often underserved. If you look at the number of cable channels, there are a million of them, but you'll have a thousand on your cable system, but probably six or seven that truly are targeted to African Americans. Not those that have African American shows, but Bounce TV, TV one BET and probably two others. So, you know, there is, uh, you know, a, a, a trend, unfortunately, and it's been there for a long time. It's been there, you know, as long as these formats have been here. Uh, Spanish radio is one also where you've had companies that have said, oh, let's go make the money in Spanish radio, where there, there are many, many aspects of serving that community that you have to be on top of. And the only way to really be on top of it is to hire people that live and breathe the lifestyle. Brian, any thoughts you have as well? You pretty much kind of hit it on the head. I think, uh, I, I think what what uh, to be honest with you, Lloyd, what you what you may have experienced is the fact that in a lot of companies there are a lot of people who are making the decisions now that don't have that expertise necessarily in urban radio. Um, I'm, I'm still a big believer that if you're, a, uh, a good programmer, you can program any format, but I also am a big believer that a, a good programmer has a vast understanding of what their audience needs and wants are and what they don't need. And there is a difference between what the, what the likes and the dislikes and, and passion for, for expectation with a top 40 station versus an urban station, to be honest with you. There are differences between a mainstream urban, which is primarily hip hop, and an urban AC. There's definitely, and, and, and I've kind of gone through this myself, in being over at Radio 1, there's definitely differences between how you deal with a Spanish audience uh, and their needs versus an urban adult audience, a hip hop audience, and a top 40 audience. Or even, but, different, even different Spanish audiences. Exactly. You know, right. that was one of the things uh, when I first started de dealing with that was um, and, and it kind of experienced a little bit of this in New Orleans, understanding, you know, they're, they're from from likes to dislikes to uh, just lifestyle things. There's a difference between Mexican, Puerto Rican and Honduran. And you got if you're going to be in that world, you got to understand it and not just take this homogenized approach that it's all the same because it's not. And when I look sometimes at some of the, the numbers that I do see on a lot of broadcasters uh, in these markets, I, I do have a better understanding as to these are the things that I'm talking about in terms of what makes you unique, what makes you special, because homogenizing your product actually does more to send people to Spotify, to YouTube and some of these other uh, uh, mediums. Then, well, because then, you become more, you become more of a commodity. Yeah, you're. I mean, at at, at that point, if you're going to do those things, you're you're literally a generic uh, media that people will come to, you know, whenever, but they don't feel a passion or a need to seek you out. 
Welcome to being lesser than Spotify, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is true. And look, I'm especially grateful uh, for you and for JC being on here talking about this subject. This is a great live event when we have two people from two dynamically different areas talking about essentially the same subject. We're talking about how to reach audiences, and it does involve, of course, about what makes you unique. But that actually means what do you do that others cannot do, correct? Absolutely. I think it's the only way to survive nowadays. That's it. People are getting very, very focused on audience. And if they're not getting focused on audience, they're getting gone. We do try to keep things at about an hour. I will say that we have gone over just a bit. And our thanks to Brian Wallace from B-Dub Creative and J.C. Derrick from Main Street Daily News in Gainesville, Florida. Please check both of those out. Pretty interesting stuff. Uh, We appreciate them being our patient and giving guest. A very special thank you to Joe Kelly for producing the Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast, which will be available within about the next hour or so. And thank you to Just Joe Productions for creating our audio footprint and distributing the podcast. Please do share our podcast, The Encouragers, The Radio Rally, and The Encouragers Innovation and Audio 2 podcast with others you know who are interested in growing their careers in audio. Both podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast. Please do remember this. Be kinder than you have to be. Thank you for being a part of Innovation in Audio and, of course, the Encouragers. And good night.